It's been a long time Now I'm coming back home I've been away now Oh, how I've been alone Wait till I come back to your side We forget the tears we cried But if your heart breaks Don't wait Turn me away And if your heart's strong Hold on I won't delay Welcome to She Said, She Said, the only podcast of rock and roll comparisons and contrasts. I'm Lena Stagg, the culinary chef and the author of the Recipe Record series of rock and roll cookbooks that cleverly incorporate rock history, facts, trivia, and photos with easy-to-prepare and scrumptious recipes themed for music genres and bands. You can take a look at them and order one of these great books for yourself or a friend at lanastag.com, L-A-N-E-A, stag.com. And in response to our opening song of the day, yes, John Lennon, it has been a long time since my co-host and I explored our original podcast format of friendly debate, looking at two sides of the rock and roll record and discussing who belongs on side A and who belongs on side B. So yes, I've been away now, as John sang, but today I'm back in the groove with the help of my wonderful co-host, Jude Sutherland Kessler. That is me. I don't know about the wonderful part. <laughs> I am here. Hey, guys, it is so groovy to be back with all of you for yet another of our fantastic She Said, She Said debates. I am Lena's trusty sidekick, Jude Kessler, the author of the John Lennon series. It is a nine-volume expanded biography chronicling the life of John, and if you tell the life of John, you have to tell about his mates, the Beatles, in a researched, documented, narrative format. So check it out at johnlennonseries.com, or you can come and chat with me August the 9th through the 11th at the Hyatt Regency O'Hare during the Chicago Fest for Beatles fans. It is a wonderful time. I'd love to meet you in person and sign a book, especially for you. And you you really are in for a treat if you get the opportunity to attend the Fest for Beatles fans and meet my lovely co-host, Jude Kessler. Uh, she is the John Lennon expert. And I know that all of you John fans love chatting with her. And if you haven't met her yet, you better mark your calendar and make sure you get to the Fest and bend do there if you <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you, thank you. And I have to vouch, we're having um, Lena's wrapped around your chicken breast, which sounds a little bit kinky, <laughs> tonight for dinner. It's from, it's from her original Recipe Records book. And my husband was so delighted when he found out that we were going to have Recipe Records 
tonight that he volunteered to go get the groceries. Listen, it is nothing short of some kind of wonderful, so you need to get these great, great books. And she said it, lanastag.com. We're there for you guys. Just look on our websites and order away. Absolutely. I promise you, you will not regret it. Now, today we are calling upon our respective areas of expertise. Jude and I are here to compare and contrast the music of George Harrison, My Arena, with Jude's area of expertise, the music of John Lennon. We'll be discussing four songs, two from George and two from John, from the closing months of the Beatles era, a time in 1968-1969, in which George was already intensely involved in his solo work and had already, in fact, released his work on the Wonderwall LP. It was an extremely creative period for him. He was writing song after song, stressing his two main themes. One, the utter shallowness of fame, and two, the unfeeling, uncaring spirit of rich, powerful celebrities, a.k.a. John and Paul. <laughs> it's the truth. It is so true. Man, he was on them, and, and justly so. He was treated very, very badly, I'm afraid. But it was a very rich and creative time for John as well. He and Yoko were extremely busy. They had the two bed-ins for peace, the one in Amsterdam and the one in Montreal. They were visiting with world leaders regarding what they perceived to be the injustice and the waste of the Vietnam War. And, of course, they had released their first very controversial LP, Two Virgins. So, some of the songs that John was creating in 68-69 were anti-war protests. Um, he was trying to create earworm ballads designed to get in one's head and stay in one's head and thus inspire people to act. But there were other songs that were very private, and they chronicled this difficult transition that John had made from Cynthia Powell's husband and Julian's father, and the Beatles' leader, to Yoko's partner, co-activist with Yoko, and of course as a solo artist rather than a member of a band. Now these private songs very openly talked about John's severe depression that he'd experienced and the vast changes that had rocked his world and his hope that happiness was now here to stay. That is right. So trying to show all of those sides of these two complex and brilliant songwriters in just a 40-minute show, Jude and I have selected four of the most representative songs. For George, we're going to look at a very personal love song called For You Blue, and we, we explore one of his theme songs, A Scathing Attack on John and Paul, I, Me, Mine. And for John, we'll examine the magic of Across the Universe, and we'll take a look at the very public anti-war theme, Give Peace a Chance. 
So with the clock ticking away, let's get started. We're going to listen in as John Lennon sings Give Peace a Chance. Two, one, two, three, four. That was Give Peace a Chance. Now, recently I was asked by author Bruce Spicer to write a chapter on John's songs during this, what he calls the Let It Be, Get Back era. For Bruce's upcoming book, which is entitled The Beatles Get Back to Abbey Road, because it spans from Get Back to Abbey Road. And what I'm about to share is a short snippet of just a little bit of the information about John's musical creations that you will find in Bruce's new book. He's releasing the volume in the next few months, and he is pre-selling it on his website, Beatle, B-E-A-T-L-E with a little B, dot net. So reserve your copy today because I am telling you these books sell out Fast, and you don't want to miss this newest volume in the very respected, impeccable Spicer Library on Beatles music. So here we go with your preview of just a small portion of my chapter uh, about John's music in Bruce's book. John's Give Peace a Chance was a glimpse, to quote a famous line from one of my favorite holiday movies, Family Man. In that movie, we are told that a glimpse, by definition, is a brief look into the future. And in this four-minute, 54-second song, the listener gets a glimpse, a look at John Lennon 2.0, the new John of the 1970s. You get to meet John the peace activist, John the performance artist, John the solo star. He's singing a pacifistic jingle of the highest caliber, and that's what John is going to do throughout the decade of the 70s and do it so well. And here in Give Peace a Chance, he creates a melodic slogan a slogan that very quickly burrows its way into your brain. John is fashioning an earworm, a phrase that you can't unhear and you can't forget. It's there to stay. Give peace a chance. Now, while John's wedding in Gibraltar might have been a very private affair for just a few people, Yoko and John's honeymoon at the Amsterdam Hilton was anything but that. It was very public. And two months later, when this bed-in for peace concept is repeated in Montreal, this song is shaped. They're recording it against a live backdrop of friends, such as their dear friend Derek Taylor and, of course, <laughs> the inimitable Murray the K. 
celebrities are also there, like Alex Ginsburg and Petula Clark, who is somewhat of a friend as well, and Dick Gregory, Timothy Leary, Tommy Smothers, who's a friend of John's until that very famous incident takes place. Tommy Smothers is there. And also there is a bevy of skeptical reporters and journalists who are there hoping to see more than just a sing-along and talk about peace. And there is a huge group of members of the Hare Krishna faithful who have gathered. John and Yoko, surrounded by these friends and reporters and celebrities, encourage the group to sing along. Smothers is playing his acoustic guitar. You can hear that. Tambourines are handed out throughout the room, and both trained voices like Petula Clark's and untrained voices take part in the song. Thus, the Montreal bed-in accomplishes what the Amsterdam bed-in could not and did not. Montreal sires a powerful song that grows and gains strength and strides out into the world to speak vehemently against Vietnam. And really, more importantly, it speaks out against war in general. Very quickly, it catches on, and on the 15th of November, 1969, this anthem is the one that's chosen to be performed at the Vietnam Moratorium in Washington, D.C., inspiring thousands and thousands of people to raise their voices in protest. Very quickly, Give Peace a Chance comes of age, and it matters. It's very, very generously credited by John as a Lennon and McCartney number to thank Paul for helping him bring the Ballad of John and Yoko to life. He and Paul had been quarreling pretty bitterly, but Paul comes into the studio with John to help him create the Ballad of John and Yoko. So John gives him credit on this song as a thank you, but it is a product not of the Beatles. This song is a product of the Plastic Ono Band, and it really functions as a first night for John, a coming out for his solo career. It takes this band member and now thrusts him into the fray full bore as a solo artist. These, the proper days of the polite, suit-wearing, bow-at-the-waist beetle are no longer. This is John Lennon of the upcoming decade, artfully directing his very first musical happening with a success that none of Yoko's solo happenings had yet achieved. Singly, neither one of them had the power to be performance artists on their own, but when they combined forces and concepts and ideas as a couple, they revealed themselves to be a mighty force for change. With the release of Give Peace a Chance, they are no longer two gurus in drag, They are world-class icons, and all heads pivot to take notice of the Lennons. John, of course, is going to follow this ballad with many other strong Lennon compositions for peace and for change in the world, Power to the People, John Sinclair, Luck of the Irish, Sunday Bloody Sunday, Woman is the Nigger of the World, Instant Karma, many other powerful, effective political songs, but Give Peace a Chance, which is just recorded on four little microphones on a four-track tape machine by Andre Perry, 
This is the debut ballad that establishes John's newfound role in the world to come. In a hotel room, number 1742 in Montreal's La Hotel Reine in Elizabeth, the lead beetle dramatically abdicates his beetle throne. And in his stead, large and in charge, stands John Ono Lennon, the radical voice of the 1970s. Bravo, Jude. (laughs) Very good work, I have to say. And as strong and powerful as John's song really is, I think George Harrison stands toe-to-toe with him in the creation of I, Me, Mine. Let's take a listen to it. George composed that folksy blues song in January 1969. George was simmering with high heat for his discontent with all of the music business that was going on around him with his bandmates, with the management. He was really getting to... A um, things were really getting to a head for George. So I, me, mine is not a concept that is lost on us. It's very basic. This song had much significance in George's life, it, so much so that he named his autobiography I, me, mine as well. He was inspired by the Indian teachings where they are denouncing selfishness. Daily, George was witnessing ego from John and from Paul and others as well. And he found ego of, that's mine, give it to me, as a very, very shallow existence. And he was always looking for the truth. George did not see the point in creating big, dramatic media scenes. When he was interviewed for the Beatles anthology, he says, I, me, mine is the ego problem. There are two eyes. The little eye is when people say, I am this. And the big eye is duality and ego. There is nothing that isn't part of the complete whole. So when the little eye merges into the big eye, then you are really smiling. <laughs> That's what, what George had to say about it. He writes, one of the lyrics in I, Me, Mine is, No one's frightened of playing it, everyone's saying it. 
flowing more freely than wine. There he is saying, nobody, nobody is ashamed of being so selfish. And everybody is, is doing it. Everyone is um, consumed with this ego. In the Gita, which is a 700-verse Sanskrit scripture that is part of the Hindu epic Mahabharata, <laughs> says, I'm just quoting this, uh, they are forever free who renounce all selfish desires and break away from the ego cage of I, me, and mine to be united with the Lord. This is the supreme state. Attain this and pass from death to immortality. So George is criticizing his bandmates, John Lennon and Paul McCartney, of their egos. And we witness George's even louder voice as a lyrical philosopher in this song. He had begun voicing his opinion during the White Album, especially the criminally omitted song, Not Guilty. And his voice was increasing in strength. And we also know that his continuing lyrical philosophy, as I call it, formed stronger ideals. He goes on. After this, after this period of I, me, mine, he goes on to sing All Things Must Pass. Isn't it a pity? What is life? Um, so his future work is progressing in mind, body, and spirit. In George's autobiography, I, me, mine, he stated, to write a song then, even one like Don't Bother Me, helps to get rid of some subconscious burden. Writing a song like is like going to confession. That was always the result of the LSD, really. Writing songs to try and find out, to see who you are. I was only letting out agony. I have been grumpy at times because there were a lot of things we had to do collectively that didn't grab me personally in the Beatle days. There was never anything in any of the Beatle experiences really that good. Even the best thrill soon got tiring. You don't really laugh twice at the same joke, do you? Unless you really get silly. When you suffer, it makes you grumpy. I have to agree with... George, in that sense, yeah, <laughs> I yeah, quite grumpy. Me too. At um, on a musical level, when we listen to this song, I feel that we are hearing two movements. The first is the somber waltzy chant, "I me mine, I me mine," and then that that's his serious side, and then he goes into that very Beatlesque, up-tempo, early rock and roll sound of um, I, I, me, me, mine. And so I feel like he's he's got two songs in there and trying to really convey that there what's what's happening, what's really going on here. It is a song that has significant philosophy as well as instrumental creativity. 
Absolutely. And, you know, he try, on, on uh, the White Album, he voices this same theme over and over and over, as you said in, the, in Not Guilty, which sadly did not make it onto the LP, in Piggies. Every time that he steps up to the microphone in the White Album, he's singing the same theme, but it doesn't really mature and express exactly what he wanted to say until I, Me, Mine. And it's just this utter frustration with John and Paul trying to tell over and over how selfish and thoughtless he considered them. And here he really says it in this final brilliant set of lyrics. Uh, Just a great song. I love what you said about the waltzy quality that draws you in. And then smack, he hits you with that Beatlesque, I, me, me, mine. It's just a great song. But, (laughs) but... (laughs) Speaking of unmatched lyrics, let's sit back and listen to a more private offering from John Lennon. Here is Across the Universe. Words are flowing out like endless rain into a paper cup. They slither wildly as they slip away across the universe. Pools of sorrow, waves of joy are drifting through my opened mind, possessing and caressing me. That was Across the Universe, and it really reminds me of years and years ago when I was teaching poetry at Troy State University in Alabama, and I used to tell my students that most songs were crippled poems that leaned upon the strength of melody and harmony and the instruments to make it whole. But once in a while, once in a while, a song comes along that is poetry itself, and really the music is just what we call in Louisiana, lanyap, something extra. It is a, another additional gift on top of brilliant poetic lyrics. Simon and Garfunkel did this routinely. If you think of I Am a Rock and Sounds of Silence and The Boxer, those are poems. They can be read without the music, and they're absolutely gorgeous. I feel that same way about Bernadette by the Four Tops. If you just read the lyrics of Bernadette, you want to weep. It is a beautiful love poem. And here John Lennon pens a poem, not just song lyrics, but a poem that is not soon to be forgotten. So let's consider what John is talking about in this gorgeous poem. He said that this song was written after Cynthia and he had had words during the waning days of their relationship. My guess is she might have been getting on him about Yoko because they had words very frequently about the fact that Yoko showed up everywhere they went. John had his book on had her book on his bedside table and he kept getting letters and postcards from her all the time. So they might have even been having words about that. But John says that she had been angry with him, and right before going to bed, she had given him a piece of her mind. In my famous John Lennon quote, 
this he said. I was lying next to her in bed, you know, and I was irritated. She must have been going on and on about something, and then she'd gone to sleep. But I kept hearing these words over and over, flowing like an endless stream. So I went downstairs and turned it into sort of a cosmic song rather than an irritated song. Well, let's see if that's what John really did. He begins his poem with, words are flowing out like endless rain into a paper cup. Can you see that image, that brilliant invocation of a virtual downpour of words into what? A teeny tiny paper cup. I mean, does that boggle your mind, threaten to overwhelm you as it did, John? Can you see the excess of phrases missing the cup and splashing about on the sidewalk? Are you watching as those words that hit the concrete, the pavement, begin to leave and make their way across the universe? This line is so powerful, and it always reminds me of Carl Sandburg's very short poem from the 1960s. If you haven't ever read it, look it up online. It's very short. It's a brilliant poem called Primer Lesson. Sandberg talks in the poem about the independence of words, the autonomy of words, how once a word is spoken, it's so independent and so willful that it walks away, refusing to be called back or taken back. And that's what John is portraying here, words making their way across the universe without you, slithering away. Now, that's both a frightening image and a lovely image. You know, if something you have said that is loving or encouraging or instructive makes its way across the universe unchaperoned without you, that's a wonderful thing. But if you've said something cruel or negative or wounding, (laughs) then the image of those words slithering wildly away like venomous snakes is pretty awful. Man, John nails that image in an economy of verbiage. He doesn't use a lot of words. He says it in a very few words and is so powerful. And then he says, thoughts meander like restless wind inside a letterbox. You can even hear the sound of those thoughts inside that letterbox, restless wind. It's hissing inside that box. You can see it. His words take you there instantly. You recall your own long, long sleepless nights, just like the one John was having, where you worry and you toss and you turn and you revisit what you should have said or what you did say and what you wish you hadn't said. And those wrong words or those unsaid words, unsettling thoughts, rattle and rumble inside this hollow metal old school style letter box shaking and jarring and tumbling blindly another fantastic linen phrase tumbling blindly as you try to go to sleep and you try to find peace this image is so artistic and so apt it's one of the finest lines that john ever penned it reminds us that he is more than just a commercial songwriter He is an award-winning poet, the author of two literary award-winning books of poetry, and here, man, he proves it. John puts his pen to paper, and he begins to express his emotions about this 
endless struggle that he and Cynthia were enduring in 1968 as they near their divorce. And he begins to hear in his head a phrase. Now, many biographers have claimed that the phrase that John heard came from his time in Rishikesh in India and that the Maharishi said it. Even Paul says that John got it from the Maharishi in India, but that is absolutely not true because John began recording, recording, not writing, but recording across the universe on 4 February 1968. That is a full 15 days before the Beatles even depart for India. So he has written this song back in January. My guess is that it came from not the Maharishi, but another source entirely. Now, John is famous for using phrases in his songs that come from literature. He's extremely well-read. Most of us know that he read two to three newspapers a day. He read two to three novels a week. He was an avid reader, and he frequently quoted from those sources. For example, and nobody told me there'd be days like this when he says there's a little yellow idol to the north of Kathmandu. He's quoting from J. Milton Hayes. It was a dramatic monologue that Hayes wrote, and it was very popular in the music halls of Liverpool, and I'm sure that he heard it quoted there. Also, the words that opened his song, Woman, You Are the Other Half of the Sky, they are attributed to many different Chinese philosophers and even political figures during the 1970s. So John was quoting. Also, life is what happens while you're making other plans. Probably the most famous line attributed to John was actually said by a cartoonist named Alan Saunders in 1957. And then after Saunders wrote it, it was quoted by lots and lots of other people during the 1960s. So John is quoting. It's a phrase that leaps into his consciousness, just as the phrase, ah, bawakawa, posse, posse, came to John in a dream when he was writing dream number nine. This time, just like Lena told us a minute ago about George, John is using Sanskrit when he quotes his Jai Guru Diva Om, which it means victory to God divine. Victory to God divine. He's quoting. So what's important here is not really John's source for this phrase or what whoever said it originally or whether it's original for John or not. What's important is what this phrase says about words that have the power to harm you and to bring you down. John, without espousing any specific theology or belief system here, not promoting the Maharishi, not promoting any earthly sect or leader, is simply saying that above our meandering thoughts, which tumble blindly, and above endless words that try to wound us, God presides offering us, and here are his words again, beautiful words, undying love that shines around us like a million suns, on and on across the universe. John's reminding us very, very eloquently that in the dark of night, when we can't sleep, when we fret and struggle and quarrel and bicker, God is there, overseeing our shades of life and offering us something clearer and something better. That was a mystical experience for John that night when he pinned across the universe 
but unfortunately he could never reproduce that magical holy moment on tape. He was so aggravated about it, and he claimed that Paul, who rushed the production of the song in the studio, was trying to sabotage his song. that, I don't think that's true. He, John was really frustrated with himself because even months later when Phil Spector revived across the universe and worked on it and worked on it and released it as part of Let It Be, he still could not recapture the sound of the spheres that John wanted to hear. I talked a little bit with Jeff Emmerich in Mississippi um, at the Grammy Museum when he spoke there about John's writing of Across the Universe. And Jeff said that John put so much feeling into this song and his vocal was just incredible, but he could never find a way to translate that heavenly sound that he heard that night onto an LP. He just couldn't. John believed that the recording of Across the Universe fell far short of what he was trying to express, and he considered the song a failure. So it really gives us pause. I mean, you really have to wonder, what would the perfect version of this song have been like? Some of you will get it when I say, I can only imagine, and that explains it all. Wow, that was a mesmerizing explanation, Jude. Absolutely mesmerizing. Thank you very much. I think he was, it was a moment for him, you know, a big, big moment. Absolutely. And um, it is like the heavens were, the clouds parted and the, the, the light came down and shines right on across the universe. Yeah. Absolutely beautiful. But it's up against a tough contender. (laughs) For You Blue is one of George's most beautiful love songs. We're going to take a listen at For You Blue right now. Cause you're sweet and lovely girl, it's true I love you more than ever, girl, I do I want you in the morning, girl, I love you I want you at the moment I feel initially in January 1969. It was reworked 
a year later input onto the B side of the Long and Winding Road, which, as it happens, was released this week in 1970. And I suppose that For You Blue was so popular and so loved that it was chosen to be included as the the B-side on The Long and Winding Road, which I believe is actually the last uh, single that the Beatles released. So I have read a few reports, and so I I couldn't quite um, let this... Sorry, I could not quite let the story be um, fully told from what I was reading in um, online and in a couple of books. But they they report that George had originally written this song for his wife Patty, but in a 1987 interview. George says he doesn't even remember writing the song and that it was a Paul song. (laughs) So, um, over the years, I had read a lot of speculation that George actually wrote the song as an ode to his guitar and that Blue was his pet name for his guitar. I do not know. I, I... can't remember the conversations I've had, but I've I've heard that that was a theory. Um, I did did find though that George had reportedly written this song in just a matter of a few minutes after he had spent time in Catskill Mountains with members of the band and Bob Dylan, and so. You can kind of hear the influence from those two, um, from from those musicians, mm-hmm. because the song is very playful and it is upbeat, <clears throat> and you can really hear the Beatles enjoying themselves in this tune. I think uh, that a lot of songs that they they recorded on Let It Be, they were trying to bring themselves back around and enjoy the early rocking out that they had experienced early in their careers. And so they definitely achieved that in For You Blue. <clears throat> in George's autobiography, again, I Me Mine, he wrote, this this is a simple 12-bar song following all the normal 12-bar principles, except it's happy-go-lucky. So I had to concur with George on that. But the, the tune is, is a, a rather sweet song about his girl, whether it's his guitar or it's Patty. Maybe, maybe all the, the, uh, the girls that want to be George's girlfriend chose to believe that it was about his guitar and not about Patty. <laughs> but his lyric, because you're sweet and lovely girl, I love you. And that lyric was enough to capture the hearts of all the girls if they weren't already captured. <laughs> then there is the musicality of this song, which is really, really significant. John 
plays the lap slide guitar and that might have been the only time I, I wasn't able to find out that was the only song that he'd ever played it on um, and George sings um, at you know at a point during the song as you heard um, go Johnny go so that is a, you know, he's not only praising John for playing this lap slide guitar, but he's also recognizing Chuck Berry mm-hmm. as Go Johnny Go. And delightfully later, he says, Elmore James got nothing on this baby as a tribute yeah. to the blues artist Elmore, Elmore James. And that is absolutely sheer brilliance. Uh, the blending of the piano of Paul and John's lap steel guitar and George's acoustic guitar make this a great, great song, perhaps one of the strongest on the L- Let It Be. It is, from an instrumental perspective, the most bluesy song that the Beatles recorded, which is quite interesting because they had such a passion for the blues music, for American blues. So in a penultimate performance, this song is beautifully captured, and I invite you to watch a YouTube video of the performance at the concert for George, where um, For You Blue is performed. And uh, check that out on YouTube if you don't have the DVD of Concert for George. Um, It is a brilliant performance. It still pales in comparison to the Beatles' performance on Let It Be, but it it is a very poignant performance of that song. Yeah, it's <coughs> this is such a sweet and um caring little song and it just draws you in. And yeah, hearing you talk about the blues, I don't know if our listeners are familiar with the fact that we've just switched over to Podbean that we had um the show for a year and a half or more on Blog Talk Radio. And you might want to go back and check out the first five shows that Lena and I did on Blog Talk, and they're still under the name She Said, She Said. It's actually Recipe Records, She Said, She Said. And um, we debated which group was the greater, the Beatles or the Stones. And I chose to defend the Beatles, and Lena chose the Stones. She loves blues, and uh, as you know, the Stones were very, very blues-based, as were Eric Clapton and other great artists of the 1960s. And so if you enjoy what we're doing today, you might want to go back because we did five shows about the Beatles versus the Stones on their backgrounds, their uh, music styles, their managers, and so forth and so on. And really, this kind of goes back to that again because we're looking at one of the great blues songs uh, on Let It Be for You Blue. And I'm just writing that part in... Shades of Life, Volume 5 in the John Lennon series, in which John and George get their sonic blue Fender Stratocasters, and they both love them so much. And uh, I can just totally see him writing this for the guitar as well as Patty Boyd. And uh, 
man, that lady, the what? I think it was the guitar. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and hey, if it's for Patty, good grief. She had something written for her, Layla written for her, and now for you, Blue. She's got to be kind of proud. <laughs> no, I'm not sure there's any other woman that's had as many uh, songs written about her and that were, you know, crazy big hits. Crazy big hits. Eric Clapton did a whole album for her. And yeah, every song on that album is spectacular. Uh, pretty impressive. Uh, I think you may have been with me at the Fest for Beatles fans when she was there just a few years ago. And, I mean, she's got to be, I, I, I'm guessing, like, in her 70s. Am I right about that? Um, because she was Georgia's age. And she was uh amazing she is gorgeous i mean not just good looking but gorgeous so there you have it but in closing i have to say that even though a love for you blue i truly believe that john cornered the market on powerhouse songs during that late 1960s let it be era you know having started the beatles as the dominating force in the band and then handing the reins over to Paul during that middle era, the Sgt. Pepper era, but then retaking the guiding creative force back with the White Album. John certainly wrote some of his strongest compositions in 1968 and 69, and of course that's the era that we're examining today. Many, many music critics have pointed out that John wrote 50, songs for the White Album. It could have very easily been his first solo LP, a remarkable solo LP. He just moved in to Abbey Road and the Let It Be years with this wealth of diversity, with musical acumen, and just in the scope of the two songs that we've examined today, Give Peace a Chance, that, that political earworm, it's nothing whatsoever like across the universe, not in style, not in sound, not in depth of meaning. Both are incredible hits. So when we consider who ruled the Let It Be years in terms of musical composition, my vote has to go to Dr. Winston O'Boogie, John Lennon. Bravo, once again. George Harrison came into the Beatles as everybody's little brother. And while his contributions were magnificent, he often felt overlooked. And year after year, he felt swept aside. And even though I'm sure that helped him to stiffen his backbone and mature into the musician that he was destined to be, he was overshadowed by John and Paul, and, but his, his guitar playing was always making a mark on the Beatles' style and signature. I don't want to say he never received credit for this, because he did, of course. But John and Paul were larger personalities, and they, by nature, commanded the audience. Acoustic Guitar Magazine published that, quote, 
I Me Mine and For You Blue exemplified Harrison's creativity as a rhythm guitarist and introduced a new element to the band's sound. End quote. That element, if missing, would have altered the sound of the Beatles forever. If you were going to present an award for most improved and MVP, it is obvious that George would be the recipient of those accolades. George's necessary progression from the little brother who had the rockin' guitar, um, who joined the big personalities. Um, he began with his, his smaller compositions, Don't Bother Me, and then he graduated into Think For Yourself, Tax Man, I Want to Tell You, Within You, Without You, The Inner Light, and While My Guitar Gently Weeps, Piggies, Not Guilty, Sour Milk Sea, Something, Here Comes the Sun. All of that progression led him to significantly improve every aspect of his craft. And while his product in the band might not have been as great in number as his protégés, it is great in quality. George was not a wasteful person, and he was not a wasteful musician. His songs were like a, his children. They were not throwaways. And John and Paul had a lot of throwaways, I have to say. Does he remember <laughs> Maxwell's Silver Hammer? <laughs> um, George's product was organic and from the earth. It was pure George. Well, Paul might have had some throwaways, but... (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Paul fans, calm down out there. Calm down. Okay, so now it's down to you, listeners. We are going to turn the decision over to you guys. We're going to let you decide who was the stronger musician in the Let It Be era. John? Dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. Or George, are you gonna do a dun da da dun da da da? Message us on our she said she said Facebook page and give us your thoughts, or our Instagram page, our she said she said Instagram page. We always love hearing from you, even if you're voting for Paul or Ringo. We just love knowing you're out there and that you're tuned in, and we thank you so much for that. Absolutely. We do thank you very, very much for listening to our show, and we ask you to share it with all your friends. Let your friends know what we're doing out here. We always love hearing from everyone, all the Beatles fans. We just love it. And speaking of tuning in, we have some amazing shows coming up for you over the summer. In June, we're going to be interviewing the one and only Zach Nilsson, Harry Nilsson's eldest son, who has been so kind to agree to chat with us about his legendary father and his dad's memorable days with John Lennon and May Pang during the terribly misnamed Lost Weekend, which neither was lost nor a weekend 
uh, was really a rich 18-month period in John's life. Zach will also share about his fight with cancer and the very positive tack that he's taken by creating this great YouTube channel. And it is called Cancerokey, C-A-N-C-E-R-O-K-E. And I highly recommend that you go to YouTube and pull up Cancerokey and subscribe to it. He has uh, videos that he posts almost every day. It's really, it's very precious. So um, check that out. And in July, we are looking forward to part two in our interview with Elliot Easton, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame lead guitarist for the Cars. Elliot's show in March broke. She said, she said, listener records. And we can't wait to share his humor, his vast knowledge, and his enthusiasm with you guys again. Finally, in August, we'll interview the one and only dashing Tom Frangione of Sirius XM's Beatles channel, where he stars each week on the Fab Forum. Tom will be busy preparing for the Chicago Fest for Beatles fans, and he'll give us the scoop on the honored guest speakers, fans, and fun that Mark and Carol Lapidos are preparing for all of us at the Hyatt Regency O'Hare, August 9th through 11th. And Tom will give us a glimpse of upcoming shows on Sirius XM as well. So watch our She Said, She Said Facebook page and Instagram page for upcoming events. And we will see you at the, Be the Beatles at the Ridge, September 20th and 21st. Jude and I are going to be there to meet you in person and share all of the wonderful, wonderful events at this free two-day festival and symposium in Walnut Ridge, Arkansas. So until then, here's to food for thought, food for the soul, and food for the love of rock and roll. Ta-ra and shine on. I said, put all those things in your head, things that make me feel that I'm right, and you're making me feel like I'm Oh